I love the little now recording sound effect. Yeah, anyway, um, so I'll start reading. Man's relation with machines takes place at the level of the function of transduction. It is in fact very easy to construct machines that ensure a much greater accumulation of energy compared to that which man can accumulate in his own body. Sorry, in his body. It is equally possible to use artificial systems that constitute effectors that are superior to those, those of the human body. But it is very difficult to construct transducers comparable to the living thing. Indeed, the living thing is not exactly a transducer like those that can be found in machines. It is that and something more. Mechanical transducers are systems with a margin of indeterminacy. Information is that which adds determinacy. But this information must be given to the transducer. It cannot invent it. It is given to it by a mechanism that is analogous to that of perception in the living. For instance, by a signal coming from the, the manner in which the effector functions, the gauge on the output shaft of a heat engine. On the contrary, the living thing has the capacity to give itself information, even in the absence of all perception, because it possesses the capacity to modify the forms of the problems to be resolved. For the machine, there are no problems, only data that modulate the transducers. Several transducers that act upon one another according to commutable schemas, such as Ashby's homeostat, do not constitute a problem-solving machine. The transducers in a reciprocal relation of causality are all within the same time. They condition one, one another in actuality. They are never confronted with a problem, something thrown down before them, something that is in front of them and that they will have to step or leap over. To solve a problem is to be able to step over it, to be able, capable of recasting the forms that are given within the problem and in which it consists. The solution of real problems is a vital function presupposing a recurrent mode of action that cannot exist in the machine. The recurrence of the future with respect to the present, of the virtual with respect to the actual. There's no true virtuality in a machine. The machine cannot reform its forms in order to solve a problem. When Ashby's homeostat switches by itself during the course of its functioning, one can attribute to this machine the faculty of acting on its own selectors. A jump in characteristics that eliminates all prior functioning occurs. At each instant, the machine exists in actuality and the faculty to apparently change its forms is not very efficient because nothing is left of the previous forms. It all happens as if there were a new machine. Each operation is momentary. When the machine changes form by switching, it does not switch in order to have this other form oriented towards solving the problem. There is no modification of forms that would be oriented by the presentiment of a problem to be, to be resolved. The virtual does not act upon the actual because the virtual, insofar as it is virtual, cannot play a role for the machine. It can only react to something that is positively given, actually done. The living thing has the faculty to modify itself according to the virtual. This faculty is the sense of time, which the machine does not have because it does not live. So he's here, he's picking up again on what we saw, well, it was a couple weeks ago now, but the, in the last session um, where he's um, making a uh, uh, sort of a strong distinction between the living and uh, the technical, um, or between a living organism and a technical object or a machine. Um, so he, he even though he earlier in the book, when he, he talked about the notion of concretization, he um, presented concretization as a, a sort of approximation to a living being. So a, a machine that becomes more and more concrete or a technical lineage that becomes more and more concrete, it uh, becomes more and more like a, a living being. Um, but he still wants to maintain that sort of um, an absolute distinction. So it, even if it becomes closer to a living being, it never fully um, achieves that that status of of, uh, of being fully concrete the way that a living being is. It seems like the distinction uh, between machine and the living 
uh, here hinges on uh, a unique conjunction Simondon is making between uh, the idea of plasticity and uh, the notion of problem. Uh, I think that's what I gathered from this paragraph that the 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 problem was a positive um, situation that the life encountered that was related to time as well. So problem and that or the conception of time, uh, the problem and the conception of time being being related here to um, what is essentially life and incommensurate to uh, technical objects themselves. Yeah, this is um, connected with some themes from the other his other main book, the uh, individuation book, where he talks about um, individuation or uh, um, the transductive um, thinking or the, like the process of, of transductive thinking as um, um, uh, problem solving. So um, one of the examples that he uses a lot is um, the disparation between the two ocular images. So like when you look at a a scene or a picture or whatever it is, the the images on your two retinas are different, and this is a, a sort of a problem, a um, um, not not exactly a contradiction in a logical sense, but it's a, a problem in the sense that you have two different inputs coming in, and then um, the organism solves that problem by producing um, a three dimensional representation of the visual visual scene. Um, so this adding a new dimension or it is a sort of invention of a solution to a problem, which is the, the two different images. Um, and so this same type of, he, he takes this as characteristic of what living beings do. Um, like to be a living being is to be a being that is capable of solving problems by, um, by invention. And so he, he's, Making a, I think a, a fairly strong claim here that that technical objects are not are inherently incapable of something like problem solving in this sense. And there's also that little bit about according to the virtual. So that that's the the faculty of self modification according to the virtual and that relates to the sense of time as well at the very end of the paragraph. That's also interesting. Yeah, I think um, that part. So again, the 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 concept of the virtual. Um, I think this is a, a reference to Bethsund to some extent, or or a drawing on Bethsund, um, because he um, proposed this idea of the virtual as, um, as as distinct from the possible. So virtual as something uh, real, um, and yeah, this is something that that Deleuze draws on as well. Um, but um, the virtual as uh, a, a real potentiality contained within um, the real world rather than as like a sort of uh, shadow of uh, um, like the possible is is conceptualized as a sort of shadow um, uh, of the re of the actual sorry um, whereas the virtual is like a, a set of real potentialities that are um, um, just as real as the actual Yeah, that's interesting. I um I've always been fascinated by the concept of actuality in 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 modal terms. There's some some formal modal logics of actuality, but they're very rare to see anyone even deal with actuality. And um, <clears throat> virtuality being very tied to actuality, it would be interesting the uh, 
I don't know. I'm I'm always fascinated by that one little point. It seems kind of like a mystery in terms of like traditional conceptualizations, which are usually restricted to possibility and necessity. But of course, modes more broadly can be unrestricted and there can be an infinite amount of modes. So yeah, so the 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 um the point where actuality sort of poses a problem is so this is something that Kant brought up um he, where he points out that um the concept of a hundred actual dollars is no different than the concept of a hundred dollars to or, or like you, you don't add anything to the concept by by calling it actual um so the the concept of possibility uh, or the concept of a hundred possible dollars and a hundred dollars um there's no difference um and so it becomes sort of mysterious what exactly it is to say that something is actual in that in that sense um it's like anything you can add to the concept is something that's shared by the both the possible dollars and the the actual dollars and uh it, it's hard to um to make explicit what it is that you're doing when you assert actuality of that concept um and this is something again hegel will draw on this and, and uh, um um and then uh, Bergson makes this criticism of this this concept of the possible for that exact reason because it um, it treats the possible as a sort of um, copy or or shadow of um, of the actual, and so he wants to instead instead of using this pair of concepts actual and possible he wants to use the concept actual and virtual, with the virtual understood as um, something that is um, yeah like real potentialities or that are that are contained within the actual rather than um, uh, sort of shadow copies of the actual, and uh, Simon Don draws on that same, um, uh, yeah, he draws on that same sort of lineage, um, and uh, so the virtuality. Um, so in the individuation book, he's um, looking at the idea of individuation starting from something non-individual, so like a, a pre-individuated um, being, uh, so being before individuation as containing different virtualities. And then it's actualized in the process of individuation. Uh, so it's something along those lines that he's he's drawing on here. Yeah, no, that that's really interesting. Um, the the connection all the way back through Bergson to Hegel is is interesting. Especially, I know that um, actuality and modal logic is relevant almost entirely because of Hegel. I'd say, like, um, for um, for the to the limited extent to which it's <clears throat> relevant in like contemporary formal modal logics. Yeah, modal logic is something that I um, know very little about, but uh, would be interested to learn more about. Um, so, if you have any uh, sort of insights as we go along about modal logic and how it relates to what uh, Simone was talking about, that would be great. Oh, I, I wish I did more so, but it's it's purely an object of fascination for me as well. I will have to. Um, I'll have to just point at it when it when it <laughs> rubs me the right way or something. I don't really have a I don't really have a very clear understanding of it either, unfortunately. I know there's multiple different um, modal logics that all have different merits. Yeah, and that's and that's I think an interesting point in its own right. So maybe a little bit off topic, but um, the plurality of of logics um, is uh, is something interesting. And Simon though I think does point to different uh a sort of a, a plural conception of logic in in the individuation book as well um but uh sorry i wanted to just um circle back to um a comment in the chat here from uh ikasok i'm not sure if that's uh um 
uh, correct pronunciation of of the name there, but um, um, okay, yeah. So they don't know either, but yeah. So um, yeah, welcome. Um, I'm happy to have you here. So um, um, and feel free to to join on the the mic if you'd like, or to point uh, to put questions and comments in the the chat as well. Um, but yeah, so. Um, yeah, so the question is, um, uh, so the, with the example of the, the eye and inventing the problem to the, or, or the solution to the problem of uh, two images um, that is unique to living things, and then the question is, how is this a, a solution of the problem? How is this solution um, a unique invention rather than just a function of the eye organ in the same manner as a technical machine? And uh, I think that's a good question. Um, uh, Simon Don, I don't think really gives a, a, a definitive answer to this question um, because I think for him, uh, and we discussed this in a previous session, maybe in the last one or the one before, that the development of computer technology has been so um, so great since his time. I think there were some things that he could sort of dismiss um, as possibilities in his time that we can't really dismiss in the same way today. Um, so like he can make this like strong claim that machines aren't capable of problem solving. Whereas today, I think that would be something a little more controversial, um, or at least you would have to make a, a better argument for it rather than just sort of dismissing it as, as he does. Um, but I think um, maybe sort of a, a gesture towards an answer along the lines that he lays out um, it would be something like um, um, the idea of solving problems of a living being solving problems is that it's a certain there's a certain openness to it. It's not um, like even when you look at a machine learning program or um, uh, any type of artificial intelligence, it, it still has a certain um, uh, you could say closedness. It's it's still based on a certain set of uh, parameters that are set up in the beginning of the the learning process machine learning process or whatever it is um and then it evolves in the in relation to that that set of parameters that are set at the outset of the of the process um so if the machine learning system um ends up producing garbage it, it can't really tell that it's producing garbage um if something has gone wrong with the process it can't um um uh, sort of decide that oh this isn't working I need to do, try something else whereas a living being that um, is is learning how to navigate a maze or, or how to um, I don't know how to find food or whatever it is um, if their if their learning process is not working or, or if their whatever activity they're doing is not working they can um, invent a new solution to that problem and uh, and sort of re re-engineer the problem or um uh like look at the problem from a different perspective and 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 try something new um so i i would tend to think that this is not a uh, a qualitative distinction like a, a distinction of kind but rather a distinction of degree um so um there's just more um flexibility and more plasticity in living beings than in current uh computer technology but i think simon don would see it as a distinction of kind. Um, so I, I hope that sort of gives a, a, a sort of an answer to that, that type of question. 
I would add though that it might not be entirely an- anachronistic to to offer the kind of um, reductive critique of that a kind of functionalist or operationalist critique because like um, I mean there were there were people in the 1800s who were making the same kind of arguments like Ernst Mach or um, um, in fact I think Ernst Mach kind of described science as like the giant eye <laughs> the other way around so um, I think I think that there's a long history of making the argument um, in against Simone in here um, that there is not anything novel about this and there is just this kind of functionality. Yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. Um, I I don't remember that uh, that bit in, in Mach, but um, um, but he does maybe along the same lines. He he does um, characterize science or or, or um, the the functioning of the of intelligence as being based on a, a principle of, of least effort or something along those lines, if I remember correctly, or um, economy of thought, I think is the term he uses. Um, so basically, um, there's sort of inputs of sensory information, and then you have to find a, uh, um, uh, a sort of framework to, to coordinate all that sensory information um, in the most economical way possible, um, which sounds a lot like the way that certain machine learning systems work today where they have like input of, of information and then they you know come up with some sort of uh, um, uh, um, framework for that information um, and uh, and do that in, in the most economical way possible with some sort of function that determines the economy of, uh, of a structure um, so yes I think you would see um, as far as I know, uh, which is not too far, um, but with the little I know about Mach, I think he would have um, understood this as, as being a uh, continuous process rather than a, a, a sort of strict distinction between um, the living being and the machine. Right, yeah, I think he, he would probably just think, it's, think of it all as pattern matching, uh, so to speak. And this the the function of of the eye is to match the pattern of one to the other, but I get one argument you could make in Sumendin's uh, favor or defense um, is that the the relationship to time kind of um, makes it seem as though that if we if we have some kind of like t- internal time consciousness we can offer a positive account of a difference that the, the purely mechanical wouldn't give necessarily. Um, at least I'm not sure if there's any like machine learnings that give assessments of their internal time consciousness. <laughs> Maybe there are, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. Um, I mean, I'm not sure what's, how exactly you would um, realize that within a, a machine learning system, like, obviously computers have an internal clock, but that's not the same thing as um, internal time consciousness. Um, but uh, I think that the relationship to time is a, a little bit like what I was getting at um, by talking about the, the way that living beings have this greater plasticity than, um, than at least today's uh, technical objects uh, and machine learning systems as the sort of prime example of that. Um, so uh, a living being can um, uh, direct itself towards a goal, uh, like a future state, um, and can 
based on that future state um, sort of reorient itself towards the the problem situation um, and and conceive the problem in a new way and uh, in order to reach that goal in, in a way that uh, to my knowledge machine learning systems today are not capable of doing but uh, again I, I would see that as more of a, a distinction of degree than of kind yeah, I, and I, I've even been skeptical of that criticism of of the capability of machine learning systems because you could just kind of specify a separation of domain, and then one one of which is like the their their primary context, and one of which is is like their their orientational transformational context or something like that. And in which case they could just be set to optimize over both and therefore have like the orientation needed. If, if in other words, you were to think of the game as like finding the adequate reasons for playing the game as like a secondary game, and then you can just, you could set it for, for, um, to optimize over that what would be representative sets of those conditions, I guess, <laughs> like machine learning to kind of guess what, what the conditions for it to machine learn should be or so, something, so to speak. But I mean, Simonin would say that there would have to be someone that actually points it to something or gives it the capacity to point to things in, to begin with and have and imbue it with that initial causal relation, which is a pretty, pretty adequate defeater, I think, of, of some of some of the more robust claims of aut automaton self-direction. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there, there's a distinction that's sometimes made in like cognitive science um, circles about um, derived intentionality versus um, original intentionality. Um, and uh, um, so the, the idea is, is that, you know, human beings at least and, and other living beings probably as well have, um, they, they can, they have this goal directedness or um, um, intentionality in the referential sense. So you can, you can think of, uh, I don't know, the sun or the center of mass of the solar system or whatever it is, you, you can refer to that, that object outside of, of your own thought or, or outside of language. Um, and they have this original intentionality. So it's not derived from something else. Whereas in computers, um, insofar as you treat a computer as referring to an object or something like that, it's, all, it's always secondary on um, a human uh, or, or potentially another animal um, that has that original intentionality. It, it's always derived from the, so it's always, you always interpret something, the, the output of a computer as um, referring to uh, the center of mass of the solar system or whatever it is, rather than having the computer itself um, having that sort of uh, original relationship to uh, the referential object. Um, so I think that's something along the same lines. And again, uh, not entirely convinced it's a distinction of kind rather than of degree, but uh, um, yeah, I think, I think this is, that's something that's probably not gonna be resolved just strict, strictly through argument, but only by actually producing um, uh, you know, new types of machines that are capable of things that the current machines are not capable of. But yeah, I don't, I don't want to get too far away from the text, though. I mean, uh, it's, um, it's, it's useful to bring up some, you know, thought experiments and, you know, relate this to contemporary developments as well. But um, maybe we can go back to the next paragraph in the text if someone else would like to read. I can read. 
Uh, technical ensembles are characterized by the fact that in them, a relation between technical objects takes shape at the level of the margin of indeterminacy of each technical object's way of functioning. This relation between technical objects is of a problematic type insofar as it puts indeterminacies into correlation, and for this reason it cannot be taken on by the objects themselves. It cannot be calculated, nor be the result of a calculation. It must be thought posed as a problem by a living being and for a living being. One could express what we have called the coupling between man and machine by saying that man is responsible for machines. This responsibility is not that of the producer insofar as the produced thing comes from him, but that of a third party, a witness to a difficulty that only he can resolve because he alone has the power to think. Man is the witness to the machines and represents them in relation to one another. Machines can neither think nor experience, vivre, their mutual relation. They can only act upon one another in actuality according to causal schemas. Man as witness to machines is responsible for the relation. The individual machine represents man, but man represents the ensemble of machines, for there is not one machine of all machines, whereas there can be a thought that encompasses all machines. So again, he's, um, he's pointing back to this claim that he's made earlier that it's at the level of the ensemble in particular that um, the sort of vital function of the human being comes in, uh, the human being as a, as a living organism. Um, so we have the like to uh, to sort of recap some some of those terms. So um, he's uh, he's making a distinction of three levels uh, of the technical object. So there's the element, um, which is like a, a component um, of a of a technical object, uh, and then there's the the um, sorry the the, in, the technical elements then the individual um the technical individual which is um at the same level as a human being so that's where we have he has that or he explains the the function of uh, alienation where where you have um uh, human individuals that are replaced by uh technical individuals uh, by machines essentially um and then there's the, the level of the ensemble which includes technical individuals um but um and, and specifically at the level of the ensemble that the human as a living being um, uh, is has plays the sort of essential role that he's pointing to here. And I think it's also interesting that he uses this term responsible. Um, he says man is responsible for machines. Um, so that's it's a it's almost a, a moral um, obligation. Um, and he even, uh, I think, elsewhere in the book, he 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 uses other terminology that expresses a sort of moral obligation towards machines, which is, uh, um, I think, a uh, rare. Um, like it's not usually we don't think of machines as something towards which you could have a, a moral obligation, but I think um, he uh, he gives the the function of the ensemble or of the incorporation of technical individuals into. Uh, an ensemble as something that is um, coordinated by human responsibility. And I think that's an interesting uh, contribution. I, I was just going to mention that I like the the very end where he um, juxtaposes thought in the machine and kind of shows that thought in the machine are incommensurate when it comes to um, um, self-referential totalizing functions, I guess. 
or you can't have a machine of all machines, but you can have a thought of all thoughts. I thought that was really striking. Yeah. Um, and the relation of thought as well to that moral obligation is interesting because uh, um, as uh, Ikasak um, has pointed out in the chat here that this um, this relation of ethics um, might be might play a role in that in making an in-kind distinction between uh human beings and machines um which is a, an interesting idea um and i think this is something that comes up in a lot of uh science fiction relating to artificial intelligence um and uh so we discussed i think in the uh the last session the how there's a sort of contradiction about the idea of automation or or this perfect artificial intelligence um it's the idea of, of uh, something that um, sort of mirrors human capacities in, in terms of being able to operate on its own without, without uh, supervision from a human being. But then at the same time, it's also something that is perfectly obedient. It doesn't have its own, uh, a will of its own, and it's not something that you um, have any moral obligation towards. So it's like a, a, a perfect copy of a human being, except that you don't have to treat it like a human being, basically. Um, and there's a sort of contradiction within that concept um, because anything that that can um, function can can replace a human being uh, as um, as a worker or whatever other role um, would have to uh, at the same time have the same have the same capacities as a human being and would have to be treated as a, a person. Um, so I think that's a, an interesting um, sort of potential line of thought uh, to make that that strong distinction that Simon Don was making throughout uh, this section, um, um, treating so uh, something as a person uh, rather than as uh, sort of a mere object um, is, uh, is uh, an in-kind distinction, um, in, probably made in the right place uh, that he wants to make it or in the, in the same place that he wants to make it. Uh, I have this uh, that uh, what you're referring to as a difference between degree and kind, this Bergsonian uh, difference. Whenever Simondon uh, does something like this uh, between the human and the machine, uh, I think it might have something to do with uh, the notion of values. Uh, I think uh, it looks to me uh, for Simondon, machines express values, certainly. Uh, but they don't create them, uh, whereas human, uh, humans seem like uh, they are repository and creators of values. He doesn't say it that way, of course, um, but uh, that's the feel I get. Yeah, that's interesting, um, that, and that ties in again with the idea of, of a, a moral obligation or an ethics uh, of relationship to to machines and and he does use the um he, he often brings up this term axiology um like we saw that in the technical mentality uh paper that we read a couple months ago um and and axiology is like the the study of values um or or the the science of values or however you want to translate it um and so the the term value is definitely something that he um that he uh, wants to retain and, and use. Um, and I think that, yeah, that, that distinction between something that, um, that expresses a value or that operates in relation to a value um, 
as opposed to something that creates values. I think that's um, probably another way of expressing the distinction between uh, something that you you have you, that you don't have moral obligations towards and something that you do have moral obligations towards. Um, so a person, as as someone that we have moral obligations towards, would be uh, an entity that can create values. I think that's a those two distinctions probably um, coincide. Uh, so that's yeah an, another interesting way of, of of posing that distinction. Right, and uh, Ikasok has pointed out in the in the chat that um, creation of values would also tie in with the idea of invention as uh, solving a problem. So, uh, if a living being is a being that invents the solution to a problem, that and that would um, at the same time seem to be uh, some sort of uh, or the creation of values would be an instance of that type of invention. Um, um, and uh, yeah, I think invention probably always has to do with a value of some kind. It's only, uh, an action is only an invention insofar as it's um, uh, related to a value uh, of something that it's, uh, you know, you're creating something better. Um, so yeah, that's a, an interesting um, uh, tie back to our earlier discussion. Okay, so I can uh, continue with the next paragraph. One can call a technological attitude that which compels man to look after not only the utilization of a technical being, but after the correlation of technical beings among each other. The current opposition between culture and techniques comes from the fact that the technical object is considered identical with the machine. Culture does not understand the machine. It is inadequate to technical reality because it considers the machine to be a closed block and it considers mechanical functioning to be an iterative stereotypy. The opposition between techniques and culture will last until culture rediscovers that each machine is not an absolute unit but only an individualized technical reality that is open according to two paths, that of the relation to elements and that of the inter-individual relations within the technical ensemble. The role culture has assigned to man alongside the machine is at odds with technical reality. It assumes that the machine is substantialized, materialized, and consequently devalued. The machine is in fact less consistent and less substantial than culture assumes. It does not relate to man as a single block, but through the free plurality of its elements or the open series of its possible relations with other machines within the technical ensemble. Culture is unjust toward the machine, not just not only in its judgments or its preconceptions, but at the very level of knowledge. The cognitive intention of culture towards the machine is substantializing. The machine is closed up in this reductive vision that considers it to be perfect and finished in itself, that makes it coincide with its actual state, with its material determinations. With respect to the art object, such an attitude would consist in reducing a painting to a certain expanse of dried and cracked paint on a stretched, stretched canvas. In regard to the human being, the same attitude would consist in reducing the subject to a fixed series of uh, fixed set of vices and virtues or character traits. And there's a footnote here. Uh, this reductive attitude can also exist toward an entire region, regionalism. Actually, I'll just read the next paragraph because it looks like it's just tied in as well. Um, to reduce art to art objects, to reduce humanity to a series of individuals that are mere carriers of, of character traits, is to act as one does when reducing technical reality to a collection of machines. Yet in the first two cases, this attitude is judged crude. In the second case, it passes for being in conformity with the values of culture, although it operates with the same destructive reduction as it does in the first two cases. Except that it operates by making an implicit judgment through knowledge itself. It is the very notion of the machine that is already distorted like the representation of the foreigner, étranger, in group stereotypes. 
So we have the the term value that came up again in this this paragraph. So uh, that was a good uh, a good suggestion. Um, that uh, um, so he he brings up the idea of values um, and um, treating treating machines as uh, as or sorry treating the technical object as identical with the machine. Um, he treats he compares this to treating uh, an art object as just uh, of, you know, some paint stretched on some paints uh, dried onto a piece of stretched canvas, or treating a human being as a fixed set of characteristics, um, and uh, and even you know comparing it to to racism or, or xenophobia, um, which is, is a, an interesting it's a, a strong uh, comparison, um, but it, it's uh, interesting to think that um, that there could be the same degree of um, of misunderstanding. In treating uh, the technical object as as a fixed machine, um, as there is in you know treating different nationalities or or ethnicities as as you know having this sort of fixed set of characteristics. That's that's a very strong claim, um, but it's uh, an interesting one as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely could be looked at as like a. A criticism of kind of demographic statistics or something like that, right? Where you, where you just think of where you have like let's let's think about what this person is like. They have this property, this property, and this property. Right? Yeah, and I think I think Simondon would say that that's not. Um, he doesn't want to reject those types of um, or, or that type of knowledge where you can say you know people in this age group have this tendency or something like that. I don't think he would want to say that that's like um, inherently wrong or something like that. But it's just that if you reduce a human being to say like, you know, they, they have, you know, this set of properties, age, gender, you know, nationality, whatever, you know, a, sort of a fixed set of properties. And you say that therefore they have this characteristic because they have these properties um, that's, um, just it's a reduction of the complexity of a human being down to um, something that's too simple, and uh, it's not treating them as a human being as such, um, as someone who can um, who can invent new values or new solutions to problems and so on. Um, so someone that might um, have certain characteristics by virtue of you know belonging to a certain age group, for example, they can um, you know decide to change their to change that characteristic or they can uh, be put into a new situation where they have to adapt in a different way for example um, so th those um, treating treating reducing a person to those characteristics is just not treating them as a person really and this because you you wouldn't be taking seriously their value creation capacity Right, I think that's right. I think that's what Simon Don would um, would say in the, the the capacity to invent something new and uh, in relation to values that they create themselves. Yeah, would someone else like to read the next paragraph? I can go. Sure, go ahead. However, it's not the foreigner as foreigner who can become the object of culture, but only the human being. 
The stereotype of the foreigner cannot be transformed into a just and adequate representation, unless the relation between the being who judges and the one who is the foreigner is diversified and is multiplied in order to acquire a multiform mobility that confers upon it a certain consistency, a definite power of reality. A stereotype is a two-dimensional representation, like an image, without depth and plasticity. For the stereotype to become a representation, the experience of the relationship with the foreigner must be multiple and varied. The foreigner is no longer foreign, but other, when there are foreign beings not only with respect to the subject who judges, but also with respect to other foreigners. The stereotype falls away when this relation of man to the foreign is known in its entirety between other people, rather than enclosing the subject and the foreigner within an asymmetrical, immutable mutual situation. In the same manner, the stereotypes relating to the machine cannot change unless the relation between man and machine, an asymmetrical relation for as long as it is viewed as an exclusive relation can be seen objectively in the process of producing itself between terms that are independent of the subject, between technical objects. In order for the representation of technical contents to be incorporated into culture, an objectivation of the technical relation must exist for men. All right, so this is um, it's a little bit, um, I think, abstract, this this paragraph. But the idea, as far as I can understand it, is um, that when you, as the, the subject, are um, in relation to the, the foreigner, um, then you can't have a, an, accurate, um, uh, an accurate depiction of the foreigner. Um, but it's only by varying that relationship um, and then having a depiction of the relationship to the foreigner itself. So not you as, as the subject related to the foreigner, but the, the foreigner related to another foreigner, for example. Um, then, then you can depict the actual relation. You can have a, a representation of that relationship itself rather than being one of the terms of the relationship. So in the same way, uh, in, in understanding technical reality, if you, if you are, um, one of the terms of that relationship, then you can't have a depiction of the relationship itself. It's only as uh, as the living being setting up the ensemble or or um, thinking at the level of the ensemble that you can actually represent the technical relationship between different technical objects um, and, and then have a, an understanding of that relationship. Yeah, I'm afraid this, is a little obscure for me, especially the last little bit. Yeah, I think it's the the asymmetry of the relationship that is the the sort of the key point. Um, is that so when you as the subject are one of the terms of the relationship, either to the foreigner or to the machine, um, then you have sort of the the relationship is asymmetrical in the sense that you are the the judge, and then the the other entity is the judged entity. Um, and then it's only by sort of stepping out of that relationship that you can have um, a, a fuller picture of that that entity. So rather than depicting someone as a foreigner, you can just depict them as an, another person and your relationship to them uh, is one relationship among many that, that they have to their, you know, their family or other people from their country or, or from your country and, and so on. Um, 
and uh, the same way that uh, to have a, a fuller picture of technical reality that's not just this two-dimensional uh, flat depiction, you have to um, you have to sort of step outside of that relationship, that asymmetrical relationship of the, of the judge to the judged, um, and you have to um, uh, you have to allow for that relationship between technical objects uh, to, to be represented itself. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm trying to grasp how this how this all works out because there's a lot of familiar familiar terms and. I'm inclined to think this is a, a a explanation of a kind of conceptual independence, which is oftentimes kind of talked about as as an ob objective objectiving or objectivation or objectivity or something like that. There, the object term is often used when there's some kind of conceptual independence um, in in especially kind of idealist theories, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure how that how everything works out here. But it seems like there's some sense in which there's the the kind of stereotypical machine relation in which machine like machines are these kind of abstract blocks, and then there's this like conceptual independence of objective objective uh machines and uh this i i, I don't know i can't really make m much broader uh work into describing the picture than that i'm afraid but that's that's pretty much what i'm working with with the end of this paragraph here yeah not sure if it's conceptual independence precisely i think what he's getting at is more a, a sort of conceptual richness um uh, so that when, when like in the relation of xenophobia, you have a representation of this person as a foreigner and, you know, whatever stereotypes follow from that. So this person comes from X country, therefore they have these qualities, usually negative ones. Um, and, uh, and the, what he's getting at here is by having that sort of by stepping out of that relationship of, of the judge to the, the judged object, um, you allow for a, a, a richer concept of that person uh, and, and treating them as a person rather than as a representative of that, that nationality or whatever um, other characteristic you're, you're reducing them to. Um, so you, you can represent them as uh, uh, not just as this foreigner, but as another person that you can relate to. Um, and I think the same idea um, is what he's pointing to with the machine uh, or with the technical object, uh, I should say. Um, so that treating treating the technical object as this abstract entity that's fixed, um, the, the sort of black box approach um, means that you... Uh, uh, again, you, you're just sort of reducing it to a fixed set of characteristics, whereas um, stepping out of that relationship and, and understanding its relation to other machines and into in the full ensemble, the technical ensemble, um, allows you to have a richer concept of that machine or, or of that technical object. Hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit um, abstract, I think, but... Um, uh, 
um, maybe, yeah, I think it will maybe be a little bit clearer as we go along. Um, but uh, before we move on to the next paragraph, um, I just wanted to point to um, Ikasok's comment or, or question in the chat here. Um, so is the idea that the cultural view of machines, which Simono seems to be opposed to, is an asymmetrical one, or a culture imposes an asymmetrical relationship between uh, human and man, or I guess between human beings? Um, so I would say it's not um, it's not so much that Simono is opposed to this cultural view, uh, or sorry, between man and machines. Yes. Um, so it's not so much that Simono is uh, is uh, opposed to the this cultural view, but he he thinks that culture as it exists today has um, this impoverished uh, relationship to machines uh, and to technical objects in general. Um, and he wants to, uh, so this is something that he, he um, sort of introduced in the, the introduction to this book, the, the idea that um, culture has to sort of expand to include the, the technical reality as well as, um, so, it, so he points to like art, as something that is uh, has a, a sort of status within culture, um, so like someone who treated art, uh, like a painting from you know Van Gogh or whoever, as um, as just some splotches of paint on a piece of canvas, you would treat them as as like not cultured. There, there's someone who doesn't really understand um, the cultural significance of this object, but at the same time, we we accept someone who treats technical objects as just um, this black box, you know, fixed uh, set of characteristics. We accept that as, as something that is part of, um, that, that's like acceptable in our culture. And so he wants, he, he's arguing that culture has to um, expand to uh, recognize the human uh, reality within technical objects uh, in the same way that we recognize the human reality within an art object, um, rather than just viewing it as, as a piece of, material um so uh our our present day culture imposes this asymmetrical relationship between uh between human beings and and machines but he wants to um or he's arguing that we need to transform our culture in order to eliminate that asymmetrical relationship right and um and i guess this is where the, i was getting the drawing in the the dependence and independence uh, distinction because the the asymmetrical relation would be one in which there is a dependent relation relationship that th this being on the the cultural milieu or whatever forces there are that um, that um, that are causal in relation to the stereotypes. Um, whereas what what is necessary in him is for for Simondon is this this process of producing uh, which which creates an objectivity which is independent of the subject um, by or in that is in relation to to terms that are independent of the subject rather is the phrase that he uses but this is this is to kind of show that there is a, a kind of independence necessary for this object objective um objectivation i guess of the technical relation i don't know that's that's the best i can do with now i think i i got a, a little bit better idea at first when i was looking at it i had no clue what was going on there but i think that there is there's a certain um like he's, he's seeing a kind of dip, um, dependency or a certain kind of um necessity and he's saying 
well, in spite of this, what is like, we still should, should do this other thing, I guess we should, we should strive for this independence or, or this objectivity that casts itself in, um, in the productive role of the subject between in independent terms, I guess. Yeah, I think I see a little bit better what what you mean by dependence and independence. So yeah, that makes more sense. Um, but uh, I think um, regardless of some of the details of this passage, I think the 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 sort of broader points is that he wants to compare um, the sort of general or or current attitude towards machines with xenophobia, and I think that's a um, a, a very striking. Um, uh, comparison and uh, again points back to the the um, what we were talking about earlier about uh, um, an ethics or a moral relationship to um, technical objects and because xenophobia of course is something that is um, you know uh, not treating a human being as, uh, as, as someone you have um, moral obligations towards um, because of their nationality or 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 uh, ethnic background or whatever it is. Um, um, so I, I think that's uh, again pointing back towards that that moral obligation towards uh, technical objects, which is a, sort of a, a key um, feature of, of this section, I think. Well, maybe uh, we can go on to that last paragraph of this section if someone else would like to read. Sure, I'll go ahead and finish it off. It's It's fairly short, so. Uh, the predominant and exclusive attention to a machine cannot lead to the discovery of technicity any more than the relation with a single sort of stranger or foreigner can allow one to penetrate the interiority of their way of life and to know it according to culture. Even interaction with several machines is not enough any more than successive interactions with several foreigners. These experiences only lead to xenophobia or to xenophilia, which are opposite but equally passionate attitudes. In order to consider a foreigner through culture, one needs to have objectively seen the relation whereby two beings or foreigners to one another play out. Likewise, if a single technics does not suffice to offer cultural content, neither does a polytechnics. It merely engenders the tendency towards technocracy or the refusal of techniques as a whole. So it's interesting, this is a little bit of a, um, um clarification of, of the last paragraph that so it's it's not just that um, uh, so it's not just relationships to many foreigners that allows you to overcome xenophobia it's stepping outside of that relationship of, of you know the the subject to the foreigner um, so or or uh, that asymmetrical relationship um, because you yourself are a foreigner to the other person as well um, so it's a symmetrical relationship rather than asymmetrical uh, so in the same way, um, this like a polytechnics or a uh, um, relationship to many machines doesn't make you necessarily overcome that that asymmetrical relationship with the machine. Um, you have to have you have to step out of that asymmetrical relationship um, and and sort of ascend to the level of the ensemble so that you can look at the technical relationship between the different machines and technical objects. Yeah, this this makes a lot more sense now. It's all it's all coming. All the pieces are coming together. I can kind of see how how what he was talking about earlier with the the categorical distinction between the concept and the machine, 
um, kind um, is kind of being fleshed out now by a a broad picture of what what is necessary for the concept and the role that makes it gives it its characteristic independence from the machine, which is is this this kind of characteristic independence. It's it's not that and well, it's it's not there can just be like a multiple um, like a, a sampling problem that, that that therefore it's not just an issue of quantity of um, it's not as though like you can just can just add more more technical objects and overcome the problem um, but there there needs to be something which is in excess of that I guess um, which is I would describe as an independent factor which is kind of um, what traditionally what kind of gives the concept um um a the a power for truth bearing i guess what what makes it gives gives it a power to say do anything consequential when it comes to an object is that it can it, the concept and the object kind of need to be in agreement and this is this is for them to be in truth right um and i i think that this is the kind of concept of truth, I guess, that is, I would, I would, I would say is kind of implicit in, in this broad conceptual account that Simone Din is offering that, that the concept must be brought to accordance with the object and must be in agreement on the same terms with the object. And this is something which the machine can't be brought into agreement on the same terms with the object. So it's excluded on that basis. So I think that this, this goes to show a lot of, um, why why that distinction is necessary or why, how he's using that distinction earlier for, of concept and machine. Um, and also um, in this paragraph, he, he, he mentions not only xenophobia, but xenophilia, which I'm guessing is so, sort of kind of like a exoticism or something like that, right? Of like the, of the other. Yeah, so that would just be, so I mean, the, the Greek term would just mean um, love of the other um, or love of the foreigner. So yeah, exoticism would be a perfect example of that, where you, you treat someone as, as um, sort of, rather than treating someone as an inherently bad or, or giving them negative qualities because they're foreign, you treat them as um, having these positive qualities because they're foreign, rather than just treating them as a, a person. Uh, to do some close reading and to take him uh, at his word. Uh, I think what's not quite right with both of them, xenophobia and xenophilia, is that they are passionate. So uh, the objectivity he is gesturing toward here is something that is supposed to be uh, devoid of uh, passion. Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. I, I, uh, I hadn't um, sort of picked up on that. Um, that word passionate but yeah he does he characterizes them as as being passionate as that's what is negative about them so he he's pointing towards a, a dispassionate uh relationship to uh other people and also to the machine um or, or to technical objects in general um so um again i think this probably can be tied back to the introduction where, where he's talking about how we have these sort of passionate attitudes towards the machine of, of whether it's loving loving the machine or hating the machine um so like a, a technocratic attitude of loving the machine or, or a technophobic attitude of, of of hating the machine um both of those attitudes are are 
insufficient to um, sort of have a, a proper grasp of the technical reality. And it's only a dispassionate attitude um, that allows you to have a proper grasp of it. So that, that would be a, a pretty, um, the sort of a traditional understanding of the role of the passions in knowledge, um, which you can find in, in like Descartes or someone like that, like uh, about how you need to um, sort of eliminate the role of the passions in, in order to have objective knowledge, um, which is interesting that he's, he's um, sort of re, uh, re appropriating that uh, traditional understanding of the relation between the passions and knowledge. I just remarked, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think that it there's a, there's a lot of different um, uh, um, of traditions that this kind of like uh, harkens back to. Like I, at first I was thinking like a stoic kind of detachment from the passions. But then I was thinking about the kind of um, um, uh, conceptual bracketing of the skeptics. Um, also kind of has this purpose of similar to Descartes kind of um, um, for the purpose of investigation, removing cognitive biases and such. And, and even the phenomenological method kind of maintains this, this classical skeptical attitude, at least for the early phenomenologists. So. Yeah, again, that's why that's why I, I sort of just called it traditional in a, in a broad sense, because, yeah, you can point back to all kinds of, uh, um, you know, Greek examples and, and then throughout, uh, you know, early modern philosophy and so on. Um, um, th this is like the um, probably the, the prevalent or the standard view throughout most of the history of Western philosophy is that you you have a. Um, you know something better insofar as you are not uh, related to it passionately, but you have a dispassionate relationship to it. Um, and I think I think that's something you know open to question. I, I I would be a little bit skeptical of that claim. I think there, are, especially when we're talking about um, relationships to another human being, I would say that a passionate relationship to a human being is probably um, part of what it means to 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 know a human being. Um, in the full sense, but uh, that's probably leading away from the text a little bit. Right, and uh, the argument could be immediately made in the other sense that the passions could obscure your appreciation of, you know, the other the other human being or something, right? Um, so I, I can see the argument splitting both ways when it comes to passions. Yeah, that's... Uh, um, I think maybe this would be a good place for us to to stop, unless um, unless you want to go forward. But I, uh, we had more discussion today than um, I was expecting, which is good. You know, it's just great. Um, that's what the whole point of the group is to discuss things, right? So um, uh, maybe we can stop here and then pick up with uh, section four next time, if that's all right with everyone. Well, the, the point of the group is has got to be in, in excess of our, our descriptions of it, you know, our purely mechanical descriptions, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, this, this sounds like a good place to stop. I actually have to um, leave a little bit early today, too. So, um, and this will leave a lot of good conversation time uh, for after we finish this fourth section next time. Yeah, I think we could also... Um 
you know, potentially depending on, you know, what other people are interested in, but we can read the fourth section and then do something like a, a recap of the whole um, part two of the book, um, since we're going to finish it next time, uh, hopefully, if everything goes according to plan. Yes, it's fairly short, so I think I think we should probably finish next time, I imagine. Okay, well, that's great. So thank you, everyone, for joining. And thank you again to 61 for um, editing and, and posting the recordings. Uh, so this one should be up sometime in the next few days as well, I would expect. Yeah, yeah, I'll try to get it up sooner. Um, the last time I, I, I was uploading uploading it and I uh, closed, closed my browser window and it never got uploaded. So I had to go and re-upload it. But yeah, no, I'll, I'll try to get it up fairly soon. And um, I'll see you all next week. Okay, great. Bye. Bye. Bye.